Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. I'd love to win a Grammy. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Folks. If you could see uh, Dennis and myself right now, you'd be laughing. He looks like Tom Cruise. He's got a, uh, these shades he's wearing now. They, they look super cool. Uh, and I, of course, looked like Tom Cruise's grandfather. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> I had a surgery today and uh, had a cancerous growth removed. Good news is they got it. Thank you, doctors. You did a great job. But I got this huge bandage. It's enormous. Dennis was very nice. I sent him a picture of the huge bandage. And instead of laughing, he said, ah, oh, it's not so bad. And then he goes, hold on. And he put on mute. <laughs> Best concert? Yeah, Steve Miller Band and the Eagles. <laughs> All right, everybody, your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, July 5th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of reefer to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It is Tuesday, July 5th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, no, not a legal crow. Legal, legal! Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Fourth of July Horror Tuesday, and here's why. Well, I think you all know why. Yesterday was just a horrible day uh, in so many ways. There was so much carnage uh, in the country yesterday. The Fourth of July, Monday, we had the day off. It just Americans killing other Americans. Uh, the particular burst of madness that has dominated the news here in Chicago uh, is the slaughter that took place at, in Highland Park, a well-to-do northern suburb of Chicago, uh, not too far from the Wisconsin border in Lake County, uh, where apparently a young man, 21 years old, let's just call him a man, uh, dressed himself up, this is the allegations, the breaking news uh, this morning, uh, in a woman's dress to avoid being detected, uh, climbed a ladder to the top of a building uh, in downtown Highland Park, loaded up his rifle, and just started shooting people. Uh, I, there was years and years ago, when I was just a kid, before my uh, guest Jim Coogan was born, before Dennis was born, there was a lunatic uh, in, I believe it was Austin, Texas, uh, I think his last name was Whitmore. It's coming off the top of my head. Climbed the top of a water tower, just started shooting people. And I, this was like 1966. And it just, I was so young and impressionable. Could, could this be happening? 
this this can't be happening in the United States of America. Uh, and of course, uh, these acts of violence have been gun violence have been hap- happening on a routine basis. It's easy to uh, become numb to them. I don't even know if, uh, as the head, a host of a podcast based in Chicago, if I would even be discussing this, if this took place, let's say, I don't know, I'll pick another state, Texas, you know, or Georgia or Virginia, uh, because it's in our backyard, we're talking about it, but we've gotten so used to it. Uh, and uh, to me, uh, Jim Coogan and I have entertained this notion many times. This is not on our list of things to discuss today, Jim. Uh, we've talked about this uh, all the time. It's, both of us have a sympathy to this particular uh, tech, tech tactic uh, for uh, putting an end to this or an attempt to put an end to it, and that is, of course, hold the weapons manufacturers liable for the carnage their products uh, produce product liability uh, case. Jim Coogan is a product liability is a product liability or could be a product liability lawyer, uh, and uh, I, I have they, they are shielded by uh, congressional law, federal law. So a very bizarre situation in our country. We have a problem. We everybody knows it's a problem, and uh, we continually look the other way uh, because half of the country ha- has a cult like worship of weaponry. And uh, that's pretty much ending the discussion on any kind of change. There's no such thing as bipartisanship. Joe Biden on this particular issue. And to give you an example of the certain type of madness that has overtaken the Republican Party, uh, I, I would I used to say MAGA, but just let's call it the Republican Party because MAGA is a Republican Party. Uh, Darren Bailey's reaction, he is now, think about this, folks, he is now the uh, Republican's candidate. Uh, to run for governor against J.P. Pritzker in November. And traditionally what happens uh, in, in a uh, primary, a party primary, is uh, candidates run hard uh, on to the base of their party. This is, this is the case with Republicans, I should add. And so they go all out MAGA, and then there's an effort and an attempt to move to the left, to the center, uh, for the general election in the hopes that they pick up the extra votes that they need to win because there's not enough MAGA votes in the state of Illinois uh, for Darren Bailey just to be elected governor. So what didn't do very well on that front yesterday with his initial response uh, to the shootings, essentially saying, let's pray and let's get back to that parade. Just a completely heartless response uh, to uh, the carnage. And ultimately it's because like Almost every other MAGA politician in the country, uh, Darren Bailey, does not want to recognize the role that the weapon plays uh, in this destruction of human lives. He just wants to just move aside. And he can't call Highland Park uh, a hellhole like you would call Chicago because that doesn't play into whatever fears and hatreds and biases uh, MAGA voters have about Chicagoans, particularly black Chicagoans. So he just kind of like throws an obligatory prayer out there and then let's get back to business. He had a retreat from that later on. I'm sure his, uh, his uh, handler said, boss, the focus group polls <laughs> results are a little weak on this. This is not working well with focus groups. So, um, it was a horror on many, many fronts. My heart goes out, of course, for uh, all the people of Highland Park and uh, people whose uh, loved ones died in that shooting. 
All right, uh, Jim, uh, welcome back, Cotter. Jim Coogan, ace attorney, uh, comes on this show once a month or so. We break down uh, Supreme Court rulings, prosecution against Trump, all the great legal uh, issues of the day. Uh, our agenda is full today, just examining a different kind of madness. This is, this is me speaking, not Jim Coogan. One day he may go before the Supremes and may not want to have to say this in front of him as he goes before him. And Neil Gorsuch will go, aren't you that little whippersnapper who called me a lunatic? Um, but the rulings over the last month, uh, Jim, I, <laughs> I mean, we I basically got three fronts, uh, Abortion rights is at the top of the list. Uh, the government's ability uh, to regulate uh, industry to keep it from polluting the destroying the world. Uh, and then, of course, guns. Uh, government's ability to regulate the sale and distribution uh, of guns, carrying guns. Uh, all decisive victories for the far right. And uh, I think puts us all at a huge disadvantage. So why don't we just start at the top uh, and just your general thoughts about uh, the, the Supreme Court in the age of the Trump appointees. Hey, Ben. Uh, so thank you for having me back. Um, I, I think uh, you probably weren't surprised as we started texting with each other over the last couple of weeks while these rulings started rolling out that I had a lot of thoughts. Um, I'm not alone. A lot of legal commentators have been uh, drafted to try to explain a real phenomenon which is happening. I mean, to, again, to the, to the extent that this feels like some very – um, I think I would, I would be comfortable using the word extreme interpretations of the law have been issued by the Supreme court over the past month as they end their 2021, 2022 term. Uh, people aren't wrong. If they have the feeling that this is upending a lot of longstanding traditions, things that they ex had expectations about, about how the law worked uh, and, and things that they rights that they believed that they had, powers that they thought the government had the right to regulate. If they feel like, if the listeners feel like this is a really dramatic, radical change, just in, in just based on half dozen opinions from the past couple of weeks, they are correct. They're not wrong. This is, you know, it, we, we get this, we've had this phenomenon ever since the, the 2016 election that uh, it feels like history is accelerating and we're dealing with all these different constitutional challenges that, um, people took for granted for a long time that there were norms and rules that all applied. Uh, and it felt as if they were being questioned or challenged in all kinds of different ways. The Trump administration did that regularly by a variety of actions that they tried to take um, and then managed to appoint three additional Supreme court justices in just four years with all kinds of shenanigans that led to that. Um, everybody's, Anyone whose reaction is, this seems like a lot of dramatic stuff happening all at once, they are 100% right. And so just as you, you noted a couple of the, the types of decisions that have really changed what people thought they had in terms of legal protections in this country. Um, but honestly, that one of the things that we're going to talk about today is just how inconsistent this application is. Mm -hmm. I mean, the New York decision, the, the New York Rifle Association, or I think it was the New York uh, State Rifle and Pistol Association's case uh, where they were challenging whether or not 
the state can require people to have a, a justifiable cause to carry around a weapon uh, that was unconstitutional based upon 14th amendment saying that those people are their, their equal protection under the law is being violated by that regulation. And yet just a few days uh, difference in time in the Dobbs case uh, versus Jackson women's health, the very, very well-known and, and already widely discussed uh, case that changes women's abortion rights. Uh, that was based upon the 14th amendment saying that uh, the federal government did not protect that right from regulation at the state level. Um, so it's interesting. And this, this, the, the bigger implication of all these cases as was very, again, this is not us doing scare tactics on your show. This was explicitly in Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs. He's issuing the warning to everyone that all 14th amendment substantive due process is up for grabs. And that's a, that's a statement that probably makes no sense to anybody who's not a trained lawyer listening to this. But here's what it means. It means all of the things that you think uh, the federal government and the Constitution protect in terms of private decisions. In other words, why would the state have the right to regulate who you as a consenting adult have sexual relations with? Whether it's a, a gay relation, straight, whatever. Why would the government, have, again, consenting relationships that used to be against the law until the Supreme court said that there was a, there was a 14th amendment substantive due process right to be protected. That's up for grabs. It was a case that was specifically cited by justice Thomas. So my general reaction to all this, just because it's such a long list of things and there's such a dramatic shift is this is, this is a dangerous time for people. To, to be aware of what their rights are. And, and this even includes Miranda, where I know we may not oh even get God. to that today, yeah. but um, hmm. it's a dangerous time for people to not necessarily know what their rights are, but it's also a dangerous time because these are, this is jurisprudence that very likely less than a third of the country agrees with. And, you know, that, that you have to be careful because obviously Supreme Court and what the law is, their constitutional rulings shouldn't be turning exclusively on public opinion because public opinion shifts. And uh, that's that doesn't mean that people are going to have the opinion that's consistent with the constitutional protections that they have or don't have. Yeah. But at the same time, doing things that are going to be wildly unpopular and really dramatically impact people's lives or their ability to, to be free to do things that they think that they have a right to do with their own lives and their own bodies is going to be problematic. And it's problematic for the legitimacy, not only of the Supreme court, which they should be more concerned about than they appear to be, but of government itself. So this is, I mean, to me, this is extremely dangerous stuff. You know, uh, I recall when we first began having these conversations, uh, it's already been five years, and uh, I was laying out my uh, typically uh, a jaded view of how the Supreme Court operates. Uh, and I remember you looking at me with like a smile, uh, and as if you were saying, come on, man, it's not that bad, where I was saying, uh, there is no actual principle that's being applied in these cases. Uh, these are uh, political operatives carrying out a political agenda, uh, and they just come up with arguments to justify whatever political cause they're promoting. Uh, and uh, I take the great delight 
you're folks sometimes i should just read the text uh, jim writes like before he goes to bed he just lets it fly and i'm like jim coogan is coming to the point uh where he doesn't believe that there's any principle here it's just uh using legal gobbledygook uh to promote a political agenda. Have you reached that stage uh, in your philosophical evolution, Jim, or do you still believe? (laughs) I'm laughing and it's making my stitches hurt, but it's fun. Do you still believe uh, in this, uh, that justice is blind? Go ahead. I'm going to take one little tangent because I think we might've, I don't know if we talked about this on the show but I think I texted you about this at one point because I was reading a, a biography of Justice John Marshall. Mm-hmm. First major, I mean, he was really the man who created what had be, what then became the modern Supreme Court, a body that would interpret the constitutionality of not just legislation coming from the United States Congress, but the constitutionality of state laws and the interplay between the federal government and the state government, which, I mean, it's it was a, a very new invention at the time and figuring out how to make that government work was one of the big challenges in the early stages of of this Republic. And we still live our lives based upon some of the ways that those things got decided in the early days, whether they were right or wrong. Um, And part of the review of Marshall was just a reminder that he wasn't really even a trained lawyer. I mean, the guy was from Western Virginia in a rural part of the state that he grew up in, but then became a lawyer and became very well connected in Richmond, which was the capital. Um, and that essentially was the thing that led him to, you know, being in power and, and having close connections with Thomas Jefferson and some of these other people. So it, it's, it's just a reminder that these were real people that came up with these things in the first place. Yeah. And at the end of the day, even though we as, as an, an early United States of America, we're trying to create what are our rules and what are our laws because what was their, one of their biggest goals? Make sure that there's not going to be some new revolution here in the States because people are so upset about how the government's operating and there were rebellions over taxes. Uh, and also make sure that the country can protect itself from outside influences because they were worried that England would come back and try to reclaim things, which also happened. And they managed to withstand both of those challenges and then the, the country grew and became more powerful and so on. But I say it this way because it's a reminder that, number one, all of the, the history and the, the legal tradition that existed before the United States became a country, we inherited a whole bunch of stuff that it's not like they just wrote all the laws from scratch. They brought in common law that was either very wise or very foolish, but those were the rules of the time. And then they tried to come up with a constitutional system that would actually work. So the notion that someone would later on be writing decisions to justify whether something should or should not be constitutional. Um, I mean, there's always a human element there. So at the end of the day, how could we pretend as if these aren't going to be political values, policy driven decisions? In other words, it's not really an indictment. It's just the reality of human nature. The people writing the decisions are people with their various biases and backgrounds and whatever their purpose was and whoever appointed them in the first place, you know, whether they felt like they had the, the latitude to, to really stand up for something that they thought was right 
versus being beholden to some political interest that appointed them to the court. Mm. And, and this is, you know, then you have this tug in both directions uh, between the strength or weakness of government for 200 plus years. Uh, some of the most horrible decisions are Supreme Court decisions, some very, very uh, anti-human interpretations of the law. You, re- you referenced it in some of your cases from last week because it's, it's definitely something that people are paying attention to now that one of the worst decisions in, in the United States Supreme Court history was the one that upheld the Fugitive Slave Act, yeah. because, which is now it's become an issue of concern because the question will be whether or not states can enforce their bans on abortion when someone travels to another state to receive that care particularly if it's legal where that person is going. And I don't know, might be something that would have been legal in that original uh, in the state that they came from up until this recent decision, because maybe their limitation was 15 weeks or something like that. Oh yeah. Um, no, that, 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 about, and that to your list of uh, issues uh, that the uh, original uh, constitution writers and people creating the government were concerned about, I would add uh, one, a very telling one, uh, the preservation of slavery. Uh, and and right. so many of these laws, these decisions uh, were written with the intention of coming up with a legal justification for uh, w- white people owning uh, black people, including which, John Marshall, including Thomas Jefferson, yes. for better or worse. For, so yeah, mostly worse know, to, to just, well, of course. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> to pretend as if these were, um, you know, august, you know, holy decisions from on high is is really kind of ridiculous if you you kind of pay attention to the actual the way that these decisions were derived this is so coming back to answer your question i think that a very cynical view that that this is all just political operation is is not it's hard to dispute that i do think that there are judges who've tried to write decisions that they think will actually reflect um a realistic view of human nature and of the rights that people should have to try to say, listen, you know, my right to express myself ends at the point where I'm now assaulting you or defaming you. But up to that point, you know, I can do what I want with my life and with my liberty and my pursuit of happiness. Um, Those would be decisions I think I would, I'm I'm a fan of when I read them. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's hard to argue with somebody who says it's all just cynical policymaking from, the highest bench. Uh, and I, I always like to, at this point, whenever the word cynicism, cynicism is thrown out, I always point out uh, whether it's me commenting on the behavior of a mayor of the city of Chicago uh, or me commenting on the behavior of uh, Samuel Alito or Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, I am not the cynic. <laughs> They're the cynics. They're the ones who are pretending... <laughs> That there's a principle they're adhering to when they're cynically exploiting that principle, but a point well taken. Uh, all right. Let, I think we probably have time for three of these cases. Uh, we could do more, of course, uh, but essentially um, uh, the Supreme Court ruling said you have a constitutional right to uh, destroy the planet. Uh, poison it with toxins. Uh, You have a constitutional right to carry weaponry. Uh, The state can't keep you uh, from carrying weaponry. Uh, That leads to the slaughter of other people. Oh, well. Uh, And, uh, but uh, you do not have the right uh, (laughs) to end a pregnancy. 
uh, and the state has unlimited, pretty much unlimited a power uh, to control uh, everything about reproduction. Absolutely everything. And we, Jim, I guarantee as the year unfolds, you and I will be discussing all kinds of lawsuits that will be filed uh, from states like Texas and Mississippi against Illinois. Uh, And I'm presuming, I'm hoping uh, that Kwame Raul prevails uh, as our attorney general, because I have no faith whatsoever in Tom DeVore, the uh, Republican nominee for attorney general, to rule on behalf of Illinois doctors or, or Illinois clinic workers or women from Texas who come to Illinois seeking an abortion. We are going to see so many cases. We're going to get down to cases regarding uh, period trackers, you know, and uh, whether that information could be used against women. I mean, folks, th- just get ready uh, for this. And uh, so we'll start with Dobbs, which, of course, is the uh, the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe. Uh, and I'll just start with this one little piece of utter lunacy. And I think I got to thank you for this. You, several people, but you were one of them, sent me the political article analyzing a uh, 17th century, I think it is, English jurist, uh, Matthew Hale, who was insane. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about the guy. Alito quotes Matthew Hale. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's next? Is Clarence Thomas going to quote Birth of a Nation in his next ruling? I mean, Jim, talk a little bit about this, uh, the underpinning, the the constitutional or logical or whatever, whatever word you want to apply to it, underpinning uh, for the ruling that Alito cooked up. Yeah, it's it's really something. Um, so the, the, the starting point is that in analyzing whether or not the right that had been espoused by the Roe decision and then changed, but also upheld by the Casey versus or Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision uh, from the early 1990s was based upon the 14th amendment. And that's kind of step one. And the court was citing the fact that any right that isn't specifically stated in the constitution. And obviously there's nothing in there about healthcare other than maybe to promote the general welfare or something like that. Uh, and there's nothing in there specifically about women's health care or reproductive rights or abortion. So therefore, the Supreme Court's analysis of any right that had been, well, in this case, they had extended it back in the 1970s. Their analysis starts with, if it's not actually in the text, then it has to be, and I'm quoting, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And then additionally, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So the, those phrases have been part of the Supreme Court's analysis for these kind of rights for a long time. That goes back a ways. That's not something that was new to this case. But the, 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 this goes back to the question that we just discussed a moment ago. What is supported by the his, the, uh, an examination of history uh, can really, I mean, that's, you stop right there and you realize how that's invited almost any interpretation that a judge wants it to, <laughs> to, to, to be based on once they look at certain parts of history, because wh- what different parts of history could you look at? There would be 
potentially millions of, of different documents, you know, uh, legal treatises that were written at the time, policy papers that might have been written at the time. Uh, you could look at almost anything. And you can interpret it a lot of different ways. In this case, Justice Alito looked towards uh, a person that he cited as a, a, a notable and uh, august legal scholar named Hale um, because it, there were there were several things that he would he had written about observing kind of the legal process of the day. So they used this as evidence of what the again there's nothing in the constitution so they're looking at well what evidence do we have of how life was lived and what was illegal and what the laws would have been and how things would have been in, in the 1790s which exposes one of the fallacies of originalism it just if you have to look beyond the document to justify what they were thinking at the time now you're playing now you're just kind of like guessing what they might have thought or what they actually believed but the second part of it is there's a part that just seems insane why would life being lived in 2022 with all the different changes in society and medical science and all of science have to be lived exactly the same way that it was in the 1790s. It's not as if that was the only moment in history when somebody's opinion mattered. And yet that's the suggestion, but this is, you got, you and I've gone over the, the various flaws in originalism more than once on this show, because it is such an empty concept, particularly when you're, when you're saying, okay, well, we can look at what's what's deeply rooted in our traditions. And I'm going to go through these several documents here, and then all of a sudden I've got a justification for my decision. In the case of choosing William Hale, or Matthew Hale, excuse me, I think is his name. Matthew. Uh, yeah. it, it really, <laughs> he really picked a winner here because this guy, I think a very generous interpretation of this person was that he had a deep psychosis when it came to women. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, he actually oversaw trials in England that became the precursor for the Salem witch trials. I'm not making this up. Okay. This sounds crazy, right? But he actually oversaw witch trials and that was the jurisprudence from those witch trials, the process of, you know, finding evidence against women that I guess the community um, completely lost their collective minds and decided to murder collectively. Uh, That, that tradition is what the Salem witch hunts and witch trials were based upon. This guy, mm. not not only that, but he was famous for uh, his very skeptical view of rape victims. He his jurisprudence, his legal treatise, like some of the stuff, the scholarly legal things that he wrote back in the 1600s, had been cited for the past 300 plus years as some of the bases for looking at a woman's accusations of rape very skeptically, you know, blaming the victim potentially, or take it a step further. He was, he was an, a, a proponent of the notion that marital rape should not be illegal. Marital rape should not be illegal in the opinion of the guy upon which justice Alito based a lot of the traditional uh, history analysis in his Dobbs opinion. Uh, and just to, just to sort of bring it all home there's, a, I guess, apparently a, a fairly famous letter that he wrote to his grandchildren towards the end of his life where it, it really, I mean, it's 200 pages. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've seen some excerpts. Mm-hmm. But it underscores this guy didn't trust women. He thought they were frivolous. He thought they were ridiculous. He thought they would waste money and bankrupt a, the poor man who, who had the misfortune of marrying one. I don't know what actually must have happened to him. Uh, or if he was just a, a person who just hated women for no for whatever reasons, 
but uh, it's it's really telling. And you almost wonder if this was intentional, <laughs> because what there could have been something else in the in the history and tradition of English common law that they might have looked at. But this was the person upon which a lot of the the history analysis was based on in Dobbs. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so it just, in my opinion, uh, destroys, well, I don't see anything credible uh, in Alito's ruling anyway, uh, in the decision anyway, because I absolutely believe your essential point is uh, right on target, which is that as our, uh, as medicine evolves and we had it, we've left the 18th and 17th century and we're now in the 21st century. And so doctors have learned a lot about medicine uh, and people are living longer and we have different kind of care. You know, we don't use leeches anymore. So as medicine evolves, I do believe uh, we, the courts should uh, pay adherence to that. I'd not have to go back to the 17th or 16th century, wherever uh, to come up with their uh, justification. But ben, uh, let me, let me just jump on one other thing about this. And this is the yeah. part that look, I, I, so I went through the exercise of self-torture of reading this whole thing. These are the kind of commitments that I make to the Ben Jarowski show. Um, but I, I read through it, and honestly, this occurred to me before I even looked at anybody else's um, review of it or even the dissent points that they made, which were salient. Um, if even the history that he could find only talked about making it illegal to injure a woman or terminate a pregnancy by, by hitting, by hurting a woman. And you know, there's like things that would cause injury to the child, that sort of thing. Yeah. Saying that that was a criminal act only after what they referred to quickening or a quick fetus. That was the ancient term or the, the 17, 1600s term for viability, which my first thought was, well, by inference, doesn't that mean that if they were outlawing anything after that point in time, that a doctor administering medicine that might kill that fetus after that point in time, doesn't that mean that it wasn't illegal before that? Yes. Which all of the, if you read the whole thing, they don't cite to anything that says it was illegal before that time. They just dance around it for roughly a hundred pages. So again, even with the just, even with this wild eyed choice of a historical justification, it doesn't even support the point that that was something that was illegal at the time or that there was no right to but of course, we have to, if we want to talk about it, the notion that women's rights were going to somehow be found if they looked around uh, historical documents about the law from the 1600s, it, it, you know, that's as if it's like saying, well, let's go hunt under the bed for ghosts. They're not, yeah. of course, they're not going to be there because it didn't exist. And uh, uh, I always cite uh, the distinguished jurist, uh, George Carlin, on this front. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I spent a lot of time in my life uh, watching George Carlin comedy bits, and uh, so he was uh, he was on the the anti-abortionist long before it was fashionable. Uh, he just says it's they hate women, uh, and I just absolutely agree with him. This is a form of torture that they're imposing on women in the United States, uh, and they're going to just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, Jim, they have this. Um, Going back to Darren Bailey, so Darren Bailey's MAGA, uh, vehemently against abortion. The, everybody who ran uh, in the, the primary was against abortion, even the moderate in the race, Richard Urban. <laughs> well, his thing was he was afraid to mention it. He was so scared. 
Uh, and so Darren Bailey, his, I said, I asked this question when he won, well, what's he going to do to win over uh, swing voters? And so I had a thought he would do this, and he sure enough, he said, well, I, I would allow some abortions in the case of uh, the woman's uh, life being in jeopardy. Man, wait till we get to the legal ramifications of that. That's going to be a whole closet industry in law. Going before a judge to prove uh, in the face of counter arguments by the state, going before a judge to prove that a woman's life is actually in danger. I don't think it's going to be like a doctor's note. You know, well, Jim couldn't go to school today uh, because he had a cold. You know what I'm saying? I think there's going to be a battle. And there's got to be all kinds of uh, motions filed and, uh, you know, delays. Uh, I, I, I have a sense that there's a whole uh, area that it will be opening up. And why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, just like the, the areas of reproductive rights in law that will uh, open up because of this uh, six to three ruling. Well, a lot of it will be driven by what prosecutors decide to do. Because if part of the concern here or part of what everybody expects to happen next is, number one, a lot of states had laws on the books that automatically went into effect upon a declaration that the Roe or Casey um, rationale was, was unconstitutional and that that right wasn't protected. And several states have already either moved to or are about to move to create more laws that restrict these rights. Uh, and in the past, most of the time, anything that was a, of a criminal nature, anything that would, would be a part of a state's criminal code that would charge a person with a crime related to an abortion that happened, most of the time it was directed at the provider. So the, the laws would, would criminalize either the doctors or nurses or assistants and so on that would be involved in the care and treatment and therefore not creating a, a legal victim out of the woman themselves. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, is already part of the some of these laws have been passed, and I'm sure that it's going to be part of laws that are passed. But remember, there's kind of there's several steps to this, so it's kind of important to break this down. The Supreme Court isn't saying no one has a right to get an abortion anywhere. The Dobbs decision is saying that the federal government can't stop states from passing the laws that they want to pass. That's number one. Number two, the states can pass the laws that they want to pass in the states where they want to aggressively curtail or shut down the ability of women to seek abortion care. But then, even if they are the law, the next step is what actually gets enforced. Uh, so some some prosecutors, even in conservative states, have declared that they're not going to spend their precious resources and, and time uh, prosecuting women. But, you know, you, you don't first of all, they're not going to be held to that if they change their mind in a particular case. That's just a policy declaration to the media or to the public. And secondly, who knows when they'll they might get voted out of office yes. and they might get voted out of office for that reason, yeah. because you'll have people who campaign saying, I'm the guy who's going to be enforce these these laws in whatever county and you can't trust Steve Jones the prior prosecutor because he told everybody he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, uphold these laws and wouldn't prosecute anybody so now it's my turn and I'll do it so those the the big uh, constitutional questions then uh, because obviously this 
um, uh, assuming the makeup of the court doesn't change, it will be legal for it will be constitutional for states to do virtually anything, as you mentioned, uh, because there are no other rights. However, the last um, it's not exactly a defense, but the last pillar that stands is that any state laws that are passed still have to pass a rational basis examination. So they can't be totally nuts. Rational basis is really the lowest of the Supreme Court's standards that they can examine whether a law at least has a rational purpose. But almost anything is acceptable, as long as the state government sends their attorney general in to argue or solicitor general to argue that, well, we have to criminalize this because uh, otherwise we're the, the rights of the unborn are, are being uh, infringed upon that, you know, that's probably going to be a rational basis. That's going to be enough for this court. So then you get to other questions like travel, like interstate travel, whether or not, and this is actually the, the interesting thing about the Dobbs decision is if you go through each of the concurrences and the dissents, it really gives you a lot of insight into the psychology of this court. So Justice Kavanaugh was the one who actually tries to uh, soft pedal the majority's opinion. He, of course, signs on to it, writes his own separate concurrence to say things like, hey, you know, I do respect all the judges that are involved in this decision and all the judges that came, you know, struggled with this difficult question up to this point. But we should not read this as suggesting that somehow people wouldn't be able to travel across straight lines because, of course, that's a, a protected constitutional activity. Well, there's not a lot of case law on that question, Ben. So whether or not they might read the, you know, their, find some other historical basis to say that uh, traveling across state lines to, to do something that would otherwise be illegal in the state where you reside is illegal. I'm sure the state's going to pass that law and, and take, a take the, the case, or intending to take the case up to the Supreme Court, whether it's Mississippi or Texas or any other state that's very aggressive. Um, that's going to be one of the biggest questions. Well, and it goes to the, a, a very fundamental constitutional question, which is how do states work vis-a-vis -vis one another yeah. and whether or not one state has to honor something that happens in another state? Well, it, it, it's gonna, they're going to be hit on two fronts. Uh, the Supremes and follow me on this because uh, the pivotal line uh, in uh, Alito's ruling says that there is no constitutional right uh, to abortion. And so we throw this back to the States. I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, and so States blue States can pass laws uh, giving women clearly giving women uh, the right uh, to uh, have an abortion. Red states can pass laws uh, prohibiting abortion. Similarly, red states can pass laws uh, stating that women uh, in their states cannot travel uh, outside to like from Texas to Illinois to get an abortion. And Illinois can pass a law saying that uh, women are free to come to Illinois to get an abortion. And furthermore, uh, they will not abide by any subpoena seeking a woman's personal medical history uh, from a clinic uh, in Illinois. So each state can pass its own law. I predict, and don't call me a cynic, <laughs> I predict, Jim, that when it comes to interpreting the restrictive laws against abortion from red stakes, the, the MAGA six, as I call them, will uh, uphold those. 
And when it comes to upholding the laws, the freedom laws, the liberty laws, to use their favorite saying, of uh, coming uh, for women coming out of blue states, they will reject them. My point being, it's purely political. It's not an issue that states have the authority to do what they want. They will limit, in my humble opinion. I, I hope I'm wrong. You know what I'm saying? Because I I see already states are making move. Blue states are making movement to enshrine abortion as a right. I think Massachusetts may have done it already. Uh, I know it's going to happen in Illinois. Uh, Governor Pritzker says he's going to have a special session uh, with the election coming up. It's a politically smart thing to do. Put it on the front burner. Let's see how Dara Bailey's going to have to vote on it. Let's see how DB votes. Uh, so what's your sense? We Do you think there'll be a, a principled consistency on the part of the Supremes when it comes to upholding a state's right to make laws regulating abortion one way or the other? Well, the challenge that they're going to have is when these, when these laws conflict, reconciling them. I, I don't, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out because of what you just identified. But if their claim is that this is something that the constitution doesn't speak about and therefore the 14th amendment doesn't extend any federal constitutional protections to people in the states from laws passed by their states, then how could they determine that something where, uh, you know, like you just identified that the state of Illinois says uh, people can continue to have a right to seek an abortion up to a certain number of weeks with no exceptions, et cetera, et cetera, and then maybe define further exceptions as it gets into the late stages of pregnancy, um, the, the rationale or the, the reconciling between uh, going from one place to another is I think that's, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. I think you're right. You, you otherwise had identified that um, you'll have, if, if a state is going to curtail the right to an abortion, but include an exception, then you're going to have some interesting case law at the appellate level and at the Supreme court level where they're coming, where first of all, it'll depend on what language is actually in that statute. How do they define whether the, the woman's health is at risk or their life is at risk? Does it have to be that it's a mortal danger as opposed to, well, they'll have gestational diabetes for the rest of their lives. I mean, gestational diabetes could be something that creates a mortal risk as of course people are then more susceptible to all sorts of health hazards. If they have diabetes that sometimes when women are pregnant, it doesn't go away afterwards and they didn't have it before they got pregnant. Um, you know, is that going to be a sufficiently dangerous risk to a woman's health that that woman might avail themselves of an exception? And then you have the issue that, that you and I talk about occasionally, which is it always, it also will depend on where they end up first, you know, whether they're in a part of the state where every judge there is going to be receptive to these arguments or are they easily going to draw an assignment to a judge who, you know, spent their legal career before they got appointed to the bench by Donald Trump <laughs> crusading against abortions yeah. everywhere. And so of course they'll say that this is not, you know, they'll find some way to say that the state didn't have the right to, to create that exception. My guess is they would probably base it somehow on the rights to life for that fetus. This will create a whole new subset of law 
where states are, are, are already passing laws saying that life begins at the time of conception. But I mean, here's a place, this would be a perfect example of where the law shouldn't be venturing, Ben, because uh, up to viable, up to the point of viability, how could anybody say that that's a human being and therefore entitled to all of the rights and responsibilities that other, other people would have? I mean, does the paternity rules start at the moment after conception? How do you figure out, you know, I mean, it's, that's it's going to, it's going to create a whole mess yeah. of law. Uh, I, I mean, in some sense, obviously if a, if a woman was forced to stay pregnant, I guess it would make sense that she, that the, the, if the man who impregnated her isn't going to stay in that relationship and runs off, uh, maybe it would be a good public policy thing for that guy to be on the hook for some kind of paternity financial contribution. Um, but I don't know how you enforce those things and how long, I mean, the, the pregnancy only lasts a few months. So how do you, how do you do that if you can't find the guy right away? I mean, it just, it creates a whole mess of, legal questions that are not going to have pretty yeah. answers. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out, just co- coincidentally, uh, uh, this week's column I wrote, I t- went back and took a look at the language uh, that was excised out of the, the, the Illinois law with the passage of HB 40, which was signed by Bruce Rauner. I had a Jimmy kill me, but I had to give him credit for signing it. Uh, <laughs> but it, the language says what you just said. Life begins with cons- at conception, uh, and that uh, that life has a right to life. Uh, and it says that that it literally was in the law book until five years ago, ladies and gentlemen. And I have no doubt uh, that if elected governor Darren Bailey will try to put it back in the law book every way he can. Uh, so there is very much a political fight ahead of us in the state of Illinois. Uh, over this issue, the one that you just raised. Uh, and uh, we'll move to the other questions because I got a feeling, uh, Jim, you and I be talking abortion law for a long time. Uh, but I, I really hope that uh, Democrats take a page from the right of this and not be afraid to propose a law that may be unconstitutional. For the last, what is it, 50 years since Roe? Uh, Republicans have been passing restrictive abortion laws uh, in states across the country intended to uh, limit uh, a woman's right to an abortion and to force the issue before the Supremes. And they finally prevailed. So at the very least, Jim, the states could buy some time so that desperate people who need uh, abortions can get them. So I, I urge, that's just my, as a, a political observer, I know you would try to keep this discussion to law, Although Jim Coogan is, he's pretty into, he's pretty much a political geek like the rest of us. Uh, I do hope, and I have have a sense that that's where we're going, actually, that they keep pushing the envelope. Despite, you know, take Alito at his word. Okay, you say it's up to us. All right, here we go. Uh, Women from all over the country can come to Illinois, and we don't have to respond to your subpoenas, uh, your rulings and that. I really hope they... um, uh, follow it. I, I have to ask you this one. Put on your political hat for a moment. I ask pretty much every guest this. So uh, the Republicans with this ruling have laid out where they stand. Abortion uh, is a sin. Abortion is a crime. And it should be illegal in pretty much every single instance. Uh, 
if that's put to the public, how do you think it'll do politically? And I think it's going to be put to the public this November. How do you it think is, it is now? Yeah, it is now. So how do you think it's going to play in Peoria, as they say? Uh, go ahead. You know, I, I, I go back to, you know, I know that you've, you've reconsidered and found a lot of flaws that you may not, that you may have been more forgiving of in the past of uh, William Jefferson Clinton. But the phrase that he espoused, that he tried to, you know, sort of a, was his style, to find a middle ground and try to triangulate an issue, talking about abortion as the goal being to make it safe, legal, and rare. Yeah. I, I don't know why that wouldn't have been our goal as a country all along. Nobody, I mean, very, very few people really want more abortions to happen. But what, they would, what I think needs to be there, and what I think a lot of people would be receptive to, is that people in difficult circumstances who can't provide for this child if they take it to term, but also maybe in a serious jeopardy while pregnant, there have to be options here. And, and you, you know, to make it reasonable to say that there's some period of time. And I think Democrats should include this in their messaging because they had to do this for a long time in order to bring Democrats who were either pro life or somewhere in the middle into the fold to make sure that they had a place to be in the Democratic Party to say, look, I, I don't think late term abortions are OK, but somewhere up to 15, 20, 25 weeks before the point of viability there has to be at least the option to, to protect that. I think that plays pretty well when you talk about some of these other health risks. And it, it really takes, it, you have to find somebody who's of the, the hail mentality not to recognize pregnancy in and of itself is an extremely difficult, medically dangerous thing to go through. Yes, it's a natural thing. Yes, that's how human life is created. But Democrats need to sit on that message and say, the reality is this is really dangerous. And if people aren't going to take that pregnancy to term or it's going to, it is going to endanger the, the mother. This is why we have these exceptions. This is why we have these outs. This is why it's not just bad public policy, but morally reprehensible to say that the moment of conception, now a woman loses every possible ability to control her own healthcare decisions. Yeah. Cause it can lead to, gestational diabetes is one of dozens of things that it could do to a woman, including they die because of the pregnancy itself. And if, if these are, if, if Republicans are going to pass laws that have zero exceptions, I think that's a very easy political win for Democrats to say, this is too extreme. Yeah. And this is taking away the, you can't look, it's one thing to recognize the rights of a, of an unborn life or I think potential life was the phrase that was used in the Roe case. And Alito kept quoting potential life. I think, in a, I think he was angry about that term. I think he was being uh, critical of the Roe uh, authors, which of course included Republicans who signed on to that decision, as we both know. Mm -hmm. um, there is a need to recognize that potential life. But does that mean that it completely displaces all of the mother's rights? That's just, that's just crazy. Yeah. It, it would, a reasonable person could say, this is a situation that requires a balance pushing that, that pendulum hundred percent in the, in the favor of the, of an unborn life who isn't making any decisions and we can't ask them anything anyway in at the expense of a mother's ability to protect her own health and well-being is too extreme. 
And I think that plays in Peoria. I don't think there's more than 50% of any state, except maybe a couple of like Wyoming or something like that, where there's such a small population that would be in favor of zero exception abortion restrictions. Yeah. No, it may be what keeps Governor Tony uh, Evers in Wisconsin in power uh, already. Uh, he and the Democratic Attorney General of that state are weighing in saying uh, they're not going to enforce the law that makes abortions illegal. That, that will be put to the voters of Wisconsin. Uh, and it'll be in states, swing states like that. I'm sure Pennsylvania will have a similar battle. Uh, and uh, so I'll be watching that closely. All right. We've, I knew we'd spend so much time talking about this because it's such an important issue. Uh, but let's uh, close. Uh, I began with where, where I began. I began talking about the carnage in Highland Park. Uh, and that, uh, that took place on the 4th of July, about a week after, uh, the MAGA six, uh, voted to, uh, undercut a gun regulation law in New York and essentially state that states there's limits, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly on the state's ability to regulate, uh, the sale of, uh, weaponry. Uh, your thoughts on the logic embedded uh, in that decision and the consequences it will have. Well, in, in New York's case, they were dealing with whether or not people would be required to have some justification to carry a weapon outside their homes. And the decision built in built itself in part on the Heller decision that I think we've talked about here before, but that was a seminal opinion authored by the late, uh, Justice Scalia, which expanded upon, again, this is the originalist, this is the original originalist, textualist, uh, who would who would probably, he would do it in a clever way, but he would probably yell at me and, and debate me and tell me why I'm wrong about my interpretation of what he wrote there. But, uh, <laughs> but Scalia found that not only did the Second Amendment uh, protect the ability of a well-regulated militia to, to keep and bear arms, but that that meant that individual Americans had an, had an individual right guaranteed by the Constitution to bear arms. It's not in the Constitution. It's just not. But he found it somewhere, and that, ex- that took things another step further in terms of enshrining uh, or making it more difficult for governments to regulate the carrying of firearms wherever people wanted to carry them. So this, this case um, further weakened the ability of state governments to regulate where people bring guns to. Uh, the, the case was about whether or not they'd have to have some kind of a justification to take it outside of their home. And of course, the, the opinion author, Clarence Thomas, used that well-worn straw man that they use all the time. Every time you hear, every time you heard anything from any of the uh, Republican candidates for the nomination and to be governor of Illinois, or anytime you hear any any gun rights person on television as a commentator, they always reference what, how this restricts the life and liberty of a law-abiding citizen. And I've always been curious how they know who a law-abiding citizen is. Because, hey, even in Highland Park, this horrible, gruesome thing that happened yesterday, at least according to their mayor, uh, Ms. Rotering, he, this guy was not known to law enforcement before this incident. So therefore, up until the moment that he climbed up to that, that rooftop, he was a law-abiding citizen. And therefore, he's one of those people whose rights we have to be worried about here, Ben. This is the issue, though. <laughs> when it comes to gun restrictions, 
the purpose of saying you need a justification to take it wherever you want, and uh, whether it's open carry, concealed carry, whatever, um, the notion that you could the, a state could have an interest in in deciding that well, you know what, people need at least to have a license, and if they want to carry it around in their car, they should have some kind of justification for that. That's a public safety notion. That's a public safety policy question. That is that is as classic a police issue as you could find, even going back to the 1790s, that governments, local governments would have the police power. And by that, I mean the ability to regulate human interaction, where you can go, what you can do. This is the most classic thing that we learned in law school about constitutional law. Police power is one of those local things. So as an example, what if the state's interest in doing this was to protect law enforcement so that they don't have to wonder whether the guy that they just pulled over is, has a piece. And yes, and you know what? Thanks to this case, it's going to be harder for them to look up whether or not that person has a registered firearm because they may not do it. And they're not going to worry about whether or not they're getting pulled over for that because six justices just said that they don't have to have any justification for carrying around with them. Hopefully, this, the states are still allowed to require people to actually register their firearms. But we both know that, that even the idea of having a free uh, FOID card, a firearm owner identification card, is completely up for grabs. There's, I, isn't Tom DeVore one of the people who's suing the state over whether or not they should be able to enforce having rules for FOID cards? I think he is. If I'm not, I mean, if I'm wrong on that, I apologize, but I think that that's actually something that's presently active. Well, Derek Bailey has advocated for that. His, uh, the gubernatorial candidate uh, okay. that the Republicans have chosen has, uh, uh, that's uh, one of his policy. He's against, he's against I mean, re- yeah. requiring uh, people to have uh, firearms cards. Go ahead. And uh, so, you know, this, this is the part that mystifies me. It seems like horrible public policy. What was the need for this? Really? Is this, and this, and this, it just comes back to that phrase every time law abiding citizen. Well, how do you know they're law abiding citizen until the point where they decide not to be a law abiding citizen anymore? It's not about the intent of the person. It's about this instrument that if suddenly, I don't know, a bad guy, a non-law-abiding citizen, could use the fact that so-and-so carried a gun into a bank, take it off their person, and rob the bank. I mean, this is, it, it's, a, it's a really simple notion of whether governments should have the ability to regulate commerce and regulate people's activity, carrying around dangerous instrumentalities anywhere they please. It's one thing to say that people, because there's a long English legal tradition that we've kept in this country, that your home is your castle, you can protect yourself in your home, having a gun there, I mean, that was, that was fine under New York law up to this point. You didn't have to have a justification for that. But then they said, well, it creates this, you know, crazy, uh, irrational situation where the person is just trying to carry the gun from one home to their new home, and how can they – and then they could be arrested for it, as if that's, that's really what we're worried about, that that's yeah. – you can't come up with some other rational scheme for that. I don't know. Go apply to the state to say I need a, a temporary travel permit to bring it to my new apartment. It, there are much simpler solutions here than than putting an enormous restriction on the state's abilities to regulate these things. Uh, so it's a bad decision. I mean, uh, in my opinion, I think it, it takes the Second Amendment way too far. It's a political decision. I completely agree with you. It's a completely political decision firing up the MAGA base uh, so they can proclaim they have a liberty uh, to carry guns. And, uh, Jim, I remember... Um, Oh gosh, time flies. About four years ago, there was a, a a a man on the south side of Chicago. I believe the neighborhood was South Shore. 
and he was a barber. His last name was Augustus. And he had a, a, a pistol on him. Uh, and the police stopped him outside his barbershop, the barbershop where he worked. And one thing led to another, and he, 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 ran, he started to run away from the cops. And they shot him. He died. Uh, and the argument was they saw they had reason to believe he had a pistol. Uh, and so they stopped him for that. And I was like, wait a minute. I, doesn't the second amendment apply to, uh, a barber on the South side of Chicago? And I wrote a column about that. And why isn't the second amendment apply to black people? And it was, I got a lot of flack as you can imagine. Uh, and then you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, the, the law and order crowd in Chicago, flipped the switch and they became like criminal defense lawyers. And they started to say, well, Ben, what you failed to recognize, uh, he did, he had, a, I think it was, he had one kind of license, license to own a gun, but he didn't have a concealed carry. It's like, Oh my God, what are you? A, <laughs> all of a sudden you're a criminal defense lawyer. You know what? It, technicalities, my friend, I thought you're not supposed to have any laws. Uh, so, it's just, again, I don't know why any, um, well, any collection of law enforcement people would support uh, this just unrestricted Second Amendment interpretation because it just means hell for cops. It seems like it would. I mean, honestly, it seems like it would. By the way, you know who Lee Atwater was, obviously. Yes. I wonder yes. sometimes whether law-abiding citizen is one of those Lee Atwater phrases. I'm sure you've heard that famous clip where he's explaining how uh, the right-wing messaging people evolved from explicitly stating that their policies were going to harm black people or, or talk about black uh, Americans, you know, being welfare queens and so on. And then it evolved to just talking about taxes, low taxes. And it was like a, it was code language Absolutely. to say protecting white people. I yeah. mean, so to me, it seems like law-abiding citizen, especially in light of the story that you just reminded me of, but that's one of those phrases. Yeah, it it's, is. It's, it's code speak. Yeah, it is. It's a, it, if he didn't invent, if Lee Atwater didn't invent it, he might have. Uh, and by the way, Lee Atwater is the one who had the con deathbed conversion of sorts, of sorts, where he was yep. dying of cancer. And he apologized for the role he played in the Willie Horton ad, just what he did uh, for the George Bush campaign. It's a, you know, I think back on this, uh, Jim. We're gonna, I'll close by this, Clarence Thomas. The, the justice who is getting his moment uh, to enshrine all his political beliefs into law, uh, whatever happens, happens, was appointed to that bench to place, replace Thurgood Marshall by George Bush, Daddy Bush, who's considered a moderate by any definition of the word, uh, supported abortion rights uh, in one of the most cynical uh, distortions of affirmative action I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and we are still paying the consequences for it. And uh, George Bush defeated Dukakis uh, with Lee Atwater's help uh, playing on racial fears and biases and hatred. So, um, you know, we're paying the consequences for these, the Republican Party's antics going back to when before you were born, in the case of uh, Nixon, etc., and when you were a very young man, uh, we we've run out of time. We don't have time to take the deep dive on the uh, the EPA case, the ruling. We'll get to that. I I know sooner or later. Thanks for putting up with me today, Jim. You can't. My I'm not. 
my camera has not worked for a week. I don't know what happened to my camera, so you can't see me, Jim. But I got this huge bandage on my face from uh, my surgery day. It was fine. Everything went well. But uh, I look like I just fought, you know, 15 rounds with Joe Frazier, the great Joe Frazier. So in some ways, you're lucky uh, you don't get to see me. <laughs> I've shielded you from that. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Ben, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, one thing I'll leave you with, mm-hmm. when we do, if we go back and talk about this EPA West Virginia case, and this is something we rarely get to do, so I have to take one more minute here. Oh. It's There is some optimism there, okay. at least in the sense that that decision, while it uh, definitely curtails the federal government's ability to do certain things regulating energy and regulating uh, carbon emissions, does not completely pre- preclude the EPA from taking actions. And it's much better than it could have been. They could, they, this could have been a vehicle for basically destroying the entire federal administrative state. We're talking OSHA, EPA, everything. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of a dark time for Supreme Court justice and, and for talking about these issues. But that decision could have been a lot worse. So if that helps brighten anybody's day listening to this, that it's, not, it's certainly not over, especially when it comes to one of our greatest challenges right now, which is dealing with. Uh, the environment and carbon emissions and temperatures that are out of control. There's at least a little ray of hope. Uh, I'll take that. Uh, I'll take that at this moment. (laughs) A little ray of hope. Uh, All right, Jim Coogan, thank you very much. Uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan joins us about once a month or so to talk law. Uh, And I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to come with us. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy at all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Jim Coogan and Clarence Thomas, they see eye to eye in this, I uh, will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Keep yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. I'm going to go take a nap, everybody. Take care. Take care.